0: Most people who overdose and die with fentanyl don't even know they're using fentanyl. I'm Dr. Rena Malik, urologist and pelvic surgeon. Today, we are joined with Dr. Russell Saraski. He's a double board certified neurologist with expertise in pain and addiction. You can find him on Instagram at md or at his practice in New York City. Today on the podcast, we discussed a number of things regarding pain and addiction. We talked about causes of pelvic pain as well as a number of diagnostic and treatment options for pelvic pain. We discussed the importance of finding a specialist that has expertise in pelvic pain to identify the root cause of pelvic pain and a variety of lifestyle changes and daily routines that you can adopt to improve your pain day to day. We also talked about foods and supplements that can improve your pain as well. We also discussed how addiction addiction to drugs uses the same brain pathways as addiction to other things, which could be food, social media, or even pornography. We discussed what the signs of addiction are and how you can intervene to best protect those around you who may be at risk for addiction. Dr. Saraski tells us, importantly, that no one is safe from addiction and anyone can potentially get addicted. And lastly, we discussed the importance of seeking care from qualified rehab facilities when looking for those that use evidence-based medicine. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited about this conversation.
1: Thanks so much for having me on.
0: I know we're gonna talk about pain today and pain in general, you know, when it's not caused by like an obvious trauma surgery, right? We know those things cause pain. You know, I mean, there's a myriad of different causes, but if you had to summarize pain, Uh, In terms of the different causes, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Well, there's a a distinct difference between what we call acute pain versus chronic pain. Chronic pelvic pain, you know, it's quite different than a new onset pain condition where there's a very straightforward diagnosis, treatment's um, pretty effective, and you're able to handle the, the issue over a number of days or weeks, versus chronic pain, which is essentially six months or more of someone dealing with pain, and that's quite different. And in the case, for example, of chronic pelvic pain, 99% are women and one in seven women have chronic pelvic pain. And that's pretty much in line with conditions like migraines. So it has significant um, societal implications. What we know is that most of these, these individuals suffer, you know, indefinitely, and they're referred to different doctors without getting a straightforward diagnosis or a treatment. And so, you know, like my group where I practice with, we have a multidisciplinary group, which involves a physical therapist, a chiropractor, psychologist. And as a neurologist, we work together and we're often able to hone in on how to help people with their chronic pain.
0: Yeah, and I think that touches on the variety of different aspects of chronic pain. There's obviously mental aspects of it, whether they're contributing or they're caused by the pain. You know, Either way, they can be a real problem. There's certainly uh, physical, musculoskeletal issues that can cause pain, neurologic issues that can cause pain, but even hormonal, um, uh, sometimes unfortunately cancer-related causes, uh, lots of different things that can cause pain. And so it can be very difficult for a practitioner who doesn't see these things every single day to really kind of deal with them appropriately, which is, to your point, why people are seeing so many doctors. I mean, in my practice, people will have seen so many physicians before they get to someone who's actually giving them a real kind of treatment plan that will get them to a place of getting better. And I think, you know, ultimately, when you've had chronic pain, there's no quick fix, unfortunately. And I'm sure you see that in your practice as well.
1: Absolutely. Uh, And you hit on a number of important topics there. So what I found to be the key to helping people with chronic pain or chronic pelvic pain is really to understand that there's, there's really three spheres or kind of like a Venn diagram if we think of the circles interlapping with each other. And each patient that's coming to you with chronic pain is very likely going to have some degree of issues from each of those three spheres. The first sphere is really can we localize a lesion, so to speak, can we find an anatomical or structural reason for their pain? and so that's really the first sphere of what how can we help this person can we find an identifiable issue that we can go after and target the second sphere has to do really with mental health and what we know is that about 75 percent of people with chronic pain do have significant mental health issues including anxiety depression in the case of chronic pelvic pain there's a high rate of ptsd from sexual abuse uh, insomnia So there's a lot of issues that if you don't address the mental health component, it's hard for people, for you to fully help people get better. And the third sphere is what neurologists refer to as um, sensitization. And what that really is, is when pain is allowed to go on for months or years, uh, there are structural and chemical changes that happen to the central nervous system, which is the brain and spinal cord. And that basically sensitizes the brain to um, pain signals from that area of the body such that even if you were able to fix the cause of the initial pain, the pain loop can continue on. And so looking at the, can we find a a direct cause that we can fix, the mental health component, and identifying if there's sensitization happening, then central sensitization, then we can really uh, help each individual as best as possible.
0: Some of the best moments in life are spontaneous, unplanned, but for men dealing with moderate to severe erectile dysfunction or ED, preparing for intimacy can rob you and your partner of spontaneity. The joy of living in the moment. Now you can restore that spark in your relationship with the AMS 700 implant, a clinically proven permanent solution designed for your satisfaction and your partner's. It's the number one physician-preferred implant. It's built to look and feel natural. Happy partners agree. 92% of patients and 96% of their partners report sexual activity with the implant excellent or satisfactory. It gives you the ability to respond to your partner's wishes in the moment, not minutes or hours later. The AMS-700. No pills, no injections, no waiting. For more information, visit edcure.org slash podcast. That's E-D-C-U-R-E dot O-R-G slash P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Sponsored by Boston Scientific. Guys, do you ever find yourself dragging through the day, low on energy, having trouble in the bedroom, or just not feeling like yourself? You might be experiencing something more common than you think, testosterone deficiency or low T. Did you know that low testosterone affects about 40% of American men over 45? As men age, testosterone levels continue to decline. You might notice signs like impotence, changes in sexual desire, depression, reduced muscle mass, or even fatigue. But here's the thing. It's not just about low T. It's about your overall well-being. That's where Rethink Testosterone comes in, a great resource for all men to learn about how testosterone affects their bodies. Rethink Testosterone is your go-to platform with tons of educational content and evidence-based scientific studies that go over everything you want to know about testosterone. From how low testosterone affects you to the common myths about testosterone replacement therapy and options for treatments. So check out rethinktestosterone.com, your hub for all things testosterone and low T. Rethink Testosterone is on a mission to change the narrative and stigma around men's hormone health. Why wait? Visit Rethinktestosterone.com today and consider checking your testosterone levels. Always remember, you're worth it. Rethink testosterone because understanding your health is the first step to owning it. Head to www.rethinktestosterone.com today and make taking care of your body a priority. Yeah, you know, we learned about central sensitization in training as well. And I think it's really important because what I describe it to patients is like, it's as if your body sees normal functions as painful, right? So your bladder feeling, for example, or the breeze on your skin, someone touching your arm can be painful when it's normally not a painful sensation. And I think empowering people with that knowledge, even knowing that they have this issue can be really powerful.
1: No, that's absolutely right. So um, like what we see is that people develop hyperalgesia, which is, you know, they feel increased pain from um, stimulus that shouldn't be painful or something called allodynia. Uh, and a, a good correlate to this is even migraine sufferers, when the, when they develop a migraine and it becomes central in its process, they can get allodynia where they can't even touch their skin on their face. And, you know, that doesn't stay, of course, but that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. But in chronic pain, it goes on sometimes indefinitely unless we're able to help them.
0: So what is happening on the brain level in somebody with chronic pain?
1: So, uh conditions like mood issues and pain, one doesn't necessarily cause the other. Instead, they have common issues that can go together and one can feed off the other. It's really a bad cycle, actually. And if you're not able to treat the components of, say, um, insomnia or sleep difficulties, you can't help the anxiety or depression. I mean, think about it. If if you have chronic pain, it's pretty obvious that someone's going to likely develop um, depression or anxiety, and vice versa. Having depression or anxiety can change certain brain functions to be sensitized to pain. So uh, we really have to analyze each of these issues in our patients in order to know how best to help them. And that's what we do in my group, basically. We address all these issues uh, to really try to get people back to their the functioning that they...
0: So are you seeing certain like abnormalities on imaging studies of people when you study, like, say, a brain of someone who has chronic pain versus someone who doesn't for example like are you seeing some correlates specific that are you know in common in patients who have depression anxiety or those who just have chronic pain i mean i think most people like you said have symptoms of depression anxiety at the same time because they're living with chronic pain but you know are there certain findings that we're seeing in the in the literature
1: this is being heavily researched with with testing like functional mris and so forth Right now, we're not at a place where we can see if someone has central sensitization of pain with an MRI of the brain. We're not there yet. But it's, so really, it's a clinical diagnosis. We take very detailed histories of our patients, um, detailed orthopedic and neurological exams. We do MRIs of the spine and say the pelvis in cases of chronic pelvic pain. We do EMG and nerve conduction studies, which is essentially, um, we send signals down the nerves in the lower extremities and the pelvic regions, and we use a computer to help identify if there's um, compression or irritation of any of the nerves. Sometimes with chronic pain, especially chronic pelvic pain, it's not always so easy to localize the issue because of the overlapping anatomy and the variations in anatomy So, from person to person. So sometimes we have to sequentially do nerve blocks of different nerves, like iliohypogastric nerves, um, genital femoral nerves, pudendal nerves, and we'll go down the line until we see, up oh, that stopped the pain, and that helps sometimes with us localizing a lesion.
0: Yeah, I mean, pelvic pain is really complex, and men obviously also have pelvic pain. It's not just in women. Very often it's misdiagnosed as prostatitis, and uh, well, you know, I guess you can describe it as a chronic prostatitis, non-bacterial, but it really is a complex pelvic pain syndrome. And we see it all the time. And I think it's because the pelvis is so complex specifically, right? There's muscles, there's nerves, there's hip pathology that can affect the pelvis, and there's spine pathology that can affect the pelvis. So really there's, and there's, of course, end nerves like you've discussed that can cause pain. Um, But let's take it back a little bit. How would you, in terms of, if you were um, telling people like, oh, is there a certain kind of person that's at risk for pelvic pain? Like, are there certain phenotypic features that you're seeing in patients who have chronic pain?
1: Great question. We're doing a lot of research on this. From experience, I can tell you that, uh, for example, there's a much higher rate of chronic pelvic pain in women who have undergone um, surgical procedures, obstetric procedures, even abdominal procedures, prolapse procedures. There's a much higher rate in those cases. There's some genetic underpinnings to this as well, right? And we don't fully understand it, but uh, we think of it in terms of a spectrum, and everyone sort of has a set point as to how they experience pain and so there you know we know that certain people are more prone to developing chronic pain we're not able to test genetics on that level yet but um, yeah certainly if someone has um, uh, high levels of anxiety or what we call uh, neuroticism traits or depression um, you're more likely to to experience not just acute pain but to have it go on to chronic pain
0: and then as you mentioned earlier I think trauma is a big part of it if you've experienced whether it's emotional physical, trauma that can play a role into risk of developing pelvic pain. And it doesn't have to be um, sexual trauma. While that obviously is a big risk factor, but we see people, at least in my practice, who have pelvic pain who have had it for, you know, and they may have had trauma just as like from their parents yelling at them or, you know, whatever, sorry, negative uh, experience they've had with their families or with other people in their lives. It's not necessarily sexual in nature at all.
1: No, that's absolutely correct. So PTSD is, there's a recent study that showed about 50% of women with chronic pelvic pain have a diagnosis of PTSD. You know, if you don't know what you're looking for, you're never going to find it. So you have to keep in mind that people coming to you are likely to have those three spheres of issues going on. And if you, for example, only look for, well, is it a nerve? Is it a muscle? And it's all we're going to target. And we're not going to pay attention to other underlying mental health issues happening that are affecting That this pain level, you're just not going to be able to get as many people better as as you should.
0: And a lot of people often ask, you know, I think when you're dealing with pain is, why does it come and go? Why are some days better? Some days, like, I feel great. And then other days, it's back to the baseline of the horrible pain that I'm living with. How do you describe that to your patients?
1: There are numerous factors as to why that can be. Sometimes it's it's strictly, you know, an anatomical issue. There are plenty of pain conditions that um, are going to be better or worse based on your position. Uh, based on your activities, based on the time of day, um, and we can go into any number of different conditions and and, and um, provocative issues and aggravating and relieving factors. But also, stress levels increasing can dramatically change your perception of pain. And it's not like we're saying, oh, it's just in your head. A lot of patients feel like that could be what you're saying to them, and that's not what we're saying. We're saying that everything you feel is elect- just electrical signals. Your brain has to give it meaning. And if your, your nervous system is taxed, if your brain is stressed, if you're not sleeping well, if you, you, know, you have underlying mental health, sh- health issues that are not being treated, then the way you feel pain could be much worse. And so these are things that really make a big difference.
0: I think you're hinting at these things, but what are kind of tips that you have for people to sort of, if they don't have pain and they're kind of a normal everyday person, like what are some tips that you can offer that kind of keep your nervous system healthy? So sort of kind of keep it from getting upregulated and kind of getting or developing, you know, these responses to pain.
1: Okay. So sleep hygiene is critical. Um, And, you know, we can go into, you know, how we counsel patients on improving their sleep, but most people have poor sleep hygiene. On top of that, routine exercise has been proven again and again to be extremely helpful in pain levels, uh, in terms of depression, anxiety. So exercise helps in a number of ways. Uh, mood and sleep, of course. And then when we're talking about modalities like yoga, acupuncture, you know, when we have our patients do this complement of treatments, they always do much better. So anyone can benefit from those types of things, exercise and sleep being the top two.
0: Are there some specific exercises you recommend or some specific sort of prescriptions for exercise that you give patients? Believe it or
1: not, it, what we find is that it's not one specific routine. It's consistency. You know, we try to have our patients exercise at least three days a week. And even if it's for 20 or 30 minutes, just anything that can get your heart rate up, it could be aerobic activity. Yoga is particularly effective that I've found, um, especially with chronic pain issues and especially chronic pelvic pain. R- routine aerobic exercises, um, you know, s- weight circuits. I-, I don't recommend that most of our patients with chronic pain do a lot of high intensity pounding down type of uh, exercises on the spine, the hips, the pelvis. Because A lot of our patients have issues there. So we try to do things low impact, like an elliptical, a pool, aerobics, yoga, those types of things we recommend the most.
0: Yeah, and yoga, particularly in terms of pelvic pain, it tends to elongate those muscles, which often either are causing the pain because they're tight and contracted, or they're subsequently tight and contracted because of dealing with the chronic pain. And so that's a huge contributor to it. And why we often refer to pelvic floor physical therapy to sort of help them learn these exercises and do them regularly. And I think the key is doing them, as you mentioned, consistently, because if you're not doing it consistently, it will come back. And it's sort of like once you are developed and living with chronic pain, it's sort of dealing with and managing those symptoms because it is a chronic condition and it takes time and consistency to get better.
1: And what else does yoga help with? Uh, Things like yoga and Pilates is core, strengthening your core. And that's also key for so many issues. So we do recommend that to virtually all our patients
0: when was the last time a doctor spent an hour with you and truly focused on what your goals are when was the last time that you left the doctor's office feeling like you really understood what's going on with your body and had a clear plan of what was going to happen next at my practice rena malik md i aim to give you just that I specialize in sexual dysfunction, bladder conditions, hormone management, and pelvic pain for all genders, and I want to revolutionize how we take care of patients and really get to know each and every one of you. That's why at my practice, when you come to see me, I'm 100% present with you for an entire hour. And after you leave, if you forgot to ask me something or need clarification, don't worry, I'll respond to your issues and concerns quickly through our secure messaging portal with no extra fees or hidden costs. You don't even have to call the office to make an appointment. Just go online at www.renamalekmd.com appointments and schedule your appointment today. We see patients in Newport Beach, California, and virtually for patients located in the states of California, Florida, Illinois, Maryland, New York, New Jersey, and Virginia. If you aren't located in those states, consider making an educational visit where we can talk about your conditions generally, but I can't diagnose or treat you as a patient. I can't wait to see you. And then in terms of mindfulness, meditation, is there any data on that for pelvic pain or, or pains in general?
1: Well, we look at the research. There's a lot of data backing up um, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and also biofeedback. We, you know, the psychologists that we work with tend to do a lot of biofeedback for pain, which is essentially helping patients with their um, diaphragmatic breathing, um, relaxing their pelvic floor muscles. Also, they actually will attach sort of um, electrodes to to patients and they can monitor their heart rate in real time and they'll help them see how they can work on changing their physiology when they experience pain or or stress. And it's been very uh, helpful for our patients.
0: That's awesome. There's also at the Veterans Hospital where I work, there's um, a healing touch program where they'll sort of use uh, I don't I'm not familiar with the techniques but it seems very promising and our veterans have really enjoyed it in terms of reducing pain. Yeah. Is there any value in sort of self-tracking? So if you have pain like sort of tracking Pain levels or activities you're doing with pain, have you found that to be helpful at all? Men, are you still searching for a solution for your erectile dysfunction? You know, the frustration of pills and injections and pumps. By the time you're ready, the moment may have passed. You and your partner can no longer enjoy the thrill of spontaneity and scheduling time for intimacy may be a disappointment. Now, there's a way to be ready in the moment for as long as you need. The AMS 700 implant is a permanent ED solution designed for your satisfaction and your partners. Happy partners agree with 92% of patients and 96% of their partners reporting sexual activity to be excellent or satisfactory. So go ahead. Live in the moment with our clinically proven, physician-preferred AMS-700. Learn more at edcure.org slash podcast. That's E-D-C-U-R-E dot O-R-G slash P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Sponsored by Boston Scientific.
1: We ask all our patients to try to keep a pain journal and a diagram, actually, and to bring it, you know, with them to our appointments because it's just much more specific when we' when we're sort of going over how they're doing and what are sort of the aggravating and it relieving factors. When people write things down, it's just it's much more straightforward as opposed to saying, oh, I think you know yesterday was a good day or a bad day or I think this was a trigger or I'm not sure. We find that people are, can much better be able to pick up things that are triggers that they might not have thought of before if they just jot down and we don't ask patients to write down paragraphs but just little notes about anything they thought that was relevant at that day. But you, they're always amazed at how they then find things themselves that they didn't think they would.
0: I know you, you talked a little bit about some diagnostic testing, um, specifically in terms of the, all the things that you've mentioned. You know, a lot of times pelvic pain patients or any pain patient will go through a number of diagnostic tests, and many of them will be negative. What are the ones that you found have been most useful And which ones would you say if someone was on a limited budget, for example, and didn't have insurance or had to pay out of pocket that they could probably skip?
1: A loaded question um, because, you know, we find that, like, for example, the, the most common conditions we find for people that come in for, say, chronic pelvic pain, it could be pudendal neuralgia, for example. You know, it could be um, spinal stenosis that radiates pain. You know, that's basically narrowing of the spinal cord from arthritic conditions generally or or herniated discs that put pressure on nerves that radiate towards the pelvis. And it feels like it's pelvic pain. Sacroiliac joint problems. The sacrum is, you know, the bottom of your spinal cord, the bottom of the um, spinal column. And it articulates with the hip bones, the pelvis. So having um, inflammation in the sacroiliac joints often is a very common thing that we see. So those are all separate conditions that are aggravated or alleviated by all different types of of things. And so I think the most important thing is that your doctor's listening, taking a thorough history and a good examination because just randomly saying, oh, do this test or do that test, you know, the tests are really tailored based on the history and the exam. And I think that's really the most important uh, issue.
0: And, you know, I think uh, it's, there's, so mu- there's so much in- interesting technology. So we were doing sort of MR neurography on some patients who were doing uh, in fellowship and to sort of see if there was certain nerve inflammation that's causing pain. And, of course, EMGs can be helpful, but they're so tricky in, in the pelvis, right? It's, it's sometimes very hard, and, and particularly in pelvic pain, a lot of the imaging will come back negative. And even the spinal pathology, which is interesting, we're seeing um, some, there's a group in San Diego that's been looking at um, annular tears and Tarlov cysts and finding that actually treating those has reduced pain because those tend to be the nidus that that starts sort of the pain that then radiates into the pelvis. But it's not really well known and really well understood at this point.
1: Yeah. So just back to the last question you asked, if you were going to say one test, I would say An MRI has no radiation, and it really does show everything. You know, it shows the soft tissues, the bones, the nerves. Now, it can't tell you if a nerve is irritable or not, but it certainly can rule out many dangerous things, for example, like tumors that could be compressing nerves. So that's critical. So all of our patients, essentially all of them, will receive an MRI of the spine and pelvis, say. And so it eliminates a lot of things that you might be very worried about. It it also can help for, for us to see issues such as joint problems, um, spine issues like spinal stenosis. Um, sometimes we see herniated discs that are either centrally pushing towards the spinal cord or what we call the cord equina nerves um, or nerve roots, uh iliac joints, hip joints. All these things can, can radiate pain and mimic pelvic pain. And so an MRI can give you a lot of information, definitely. And in terms of Tarlov cysts, I, I don't know if you want to discuss that, but um, that's a controversial area right now that we're just starting to look into. We've treated a few patients, And, um, you know, we can certainly delve into that more, if if you like.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. So what we're finding, at least in this group that is working on this in San Diego, is that certain patients, they come in with maybe clitoral pain, or they come in with um, pelvic pain, or they come in with pain with sex, and they get MRI imaging, and they're finding either um, now more often actually annular tears, um, and before they were actually seeing more Tarlov cysts, but I think it's, you have to look for those things, and then are these things actually pathologic, right? And so in in some cases, they've seen actually pretty good results when they've surgically intervened and either removed the cyst or cleaned up the annular tear. And so it's really interesting. And I think in some cases, it makes sense, right? Because you're having so many different symptoms from multiple different nerves, particularly in the pelvis. If you're having bladder symptoms and you're having nerves pain symptoms like pudendal neuralgia, and if you're having Um, you know, other sort of symptoms that are not making sense with just one nerve or one end nerve causing the issue, it makes more sense that it would be more central.
1: No, that's absolutely right. And this is a very nuanced area, right? I would be dubious about a one-size-fits-all approach to every patient because that's just not how medicine is. You know, human beings are enormously complex and there's a myriad of issues that could be gone. However, having said that, uh, if it looks like you're having a hard time figuring out where the nitis or, or initial insult is, the anatomical lesion, so to speak, like I said, we can sometimes do sequential nerve blocks to see if that helps them. Those are the end nerves like you're talking about. But let's say we do the nerve blocks and still we're not seeing results. So the reason why uh, Tarloff cysts are fluid-filled cysts uh, that, are near the, that are in the spine, but they can sometimes grow big enough to put pressure or create a pressurized environment and, and compress nerve roots from the spine which can cause you know, all different kinds of issues. The problem is that we find these incidentally in, in about 5 to 10% of the population, and annular tears. I mean, my God, everyone has going to have those, especially as you get older, right? Because our spine ages like the rest of us. So we do see these things. So the key is to you know, have your doctor hat on and to look at the history of the exam, look at all the information, and then look at it and say, you know what? Is it likely or possible that this particular cyst in this person isn't just what we call incidental, meaning it's just there, but it doesn't have any clinical relevance, but is it actually possibly behind some of the symptoms? And so what we found is that, and what the research backs up is that the size of the cyst does seem to matter, right? And we don't have a lot of evidence, but, um, you know, for example, the few cases that we've had that we've decided to go ahead and treat them, they were at least, they were over 1.5 centimeters. Um, They were very much approximating the nerve roots, and the patients had significant pain in the pelvis, also the leg in many cases. We were successful in treating these. Now, in one case that we had it aspirated, which is essentially, you know, a needle draining it, right? And that person had their symptoms resolved, and then they came back. And when we re-imaged it, we saw the cyst was back, which is why surgery in most cases is going to be more beneficial but you might not be sure at all if the cyst is causing issues, and maybe you just want to do an aspiration because that doesn't involve surgery to see if the person responds. So there's different strategies and and ways to go about it, but it's not so simple that everyone who's having chronic pelvic pain that it's due to a Tarlov cyst, for example.
0: Absolutely. I mean, there's regions of pelvic pain, there's different causes, and that's sort of why I think it's important to go to a specialist who can handle your pelvic pain because there's just so much complexity there. And there are minimally invasive things that we can offer that can help uh, and improve your quality of life. And speaking of, uh, you did mention pudendal neuralgia. I find that to be a very challenging diagnosis. So I'd love to hear your take on how you manage those patients. For
1: sure. And you know, the, some of the big clues to pudendal neuralgia are right from the history. If you take a detailed history, what you'll typically hear, the pudendal nerves, they come from the sacral plexus or the nerve bundles from the sacrum. And the pudendal nerve has motor, sensory, and autonomic functions, but generally it's the sensory function that gets irritable. And so what, what people feel is they can get burning, tingling, pain in the genital area. It's typically much worse when you're sitting and when you get up, it's, it's alleviated. And that, I mean, it's pretty universal, right? So the, when you hear these things, it's, it's strong clues of what's going on. It also tends to be in people who do repetitive activities, especially like where they're sitting. So cycling, for example. The many, most of the cases I see come from um, people who are cycling. Sometimes this nerve gets irritable um, and it's idiopathic, meaning we don't know why. And other times it's after a surgical procedure, for example, prolapse surgery. It, it, it could be quite distressing, as you know. And patients, again, this is a misdiagnosis and people can suffer for a long period of time until they come across a clinician who's thinking about this diagnosis. And there's many ways to treat it. So, so getting to a specialist, like you said, is, is important
0: technology and the interest in pedental neuralgia is increasing and I think the challenge has been that in general pain conditions overall people don't like to put a lot of attention and energy into them like they do for cancers or other you know other sort of more life-threatening conditions because they're not life-threatening but they are really morbid in terms of how they affect our quality of life as you know very well and I think it's important that there is more information and more knowledge going on out there.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, most of the patients I see, they're really in quite in, in a good deal of distress. And it's not just like, oh, it's painful, but it, it's in the background and it's just an annoying and I go on with my day. Many of these people are really quietly suffering. Chronic pain of this nature, especially chronic neuropathic pain, chronic nerve pain, you know, it has tentacles that go into every aspect of people's lives. People have committed suicide from chronic pain, especially in neurology. We see conditions that really could be quite brutal. And, and if only they got diagnosed or only they, you know, they got to the right kind of specialist, they could have been helped.
0: Yeah. And so do you want to touch a little bit on those, those treatment options that are available for pudendal neuralgia? Sure.
1: So like many pain conditions, um, typically it's a combination of medicines. We have very safe, uh, non-habit-forming medicines that really can bring relief very quickly. Medications like, for example, Cymbalta uh, or Gabapentin Sometimes we use combinations of these medicines. They dramatically can reduce nerve pain very quickly, actually. Some of the medicines, like for example, Cymbalta, which increases neurotransmitters in the brain like norepinephrine and serotonin, that medicine is on label by the FDA to treat depression, to treat chronic pain, uh, to treat chronic nerve issues like post neuralgia or peripheral neuropathy. Uh, So one medicine can treat mental health issues and help with chronic pain so we have safe medicines like this and they can be very helpful so a lot of patients we may absolutely start by using um, some safe medicines so that you can feel much better and perhaps be able to tolerate physical therapy for example especially internal physical therapy and also then we can start sometimes doing injections for example if we think it's the pudendal nerve then you can do nerve blocks where we use anesthetics like lidocaine and we can endorse steroids, and we can inject them. And it's diagnostic and therapeutic, because if you block the nerve, the patient's gonna feel better right away. Boom, we know that's the diagnosis, and you're helping them a lot. So it's medicines, it's injections.
0: In terms of alternate therapies, are there um, alternate therapies that you use or the ones that are kind of being really researched in the area of pain right now? Hey guys. Low testosterone, or low T, affects about 30% of adult men in America. Are you feeling the drag of fatigue, noticing a dip in muscle mass, or sensing a slump in your libido? You might have low T, a condition that can significantly impact a man's life. Get your testosterone level tested. Kaisotrex is an FDA-approved pill that's changing the game in testosterone replacement therapy. Kaisotrex was shown to be effective in restoring testosterone levels in nearly 9 out of 10 clinical study participants. Each Kaisotrex oral capsule is uniquely formulated to be easily absorbed and bypass your liver to avoid liver damage. Patients also saw a decrease in sex hormone binding globulin and an increase in free testosterone. It's time to break free from injections, pellets, and gels. Choose Kaisotrex and take a step towards being the hero of your life. By prescription only, Kaisotrex is a controlled substance and can be a target of abuse. Chisotrex is not for use in pregnant women or men with prostate or breast cancer. Safety and efficacy in those younger than 18 is not known. Tell your doctor about all medical conditions and medications. Serious side effects could include increased blood pressure, worsening prostate symptoms, increased risk of prostate cancer, blood clots in the legs or lungs, decreased sperm problems, liver problems, enlarged or painful breasts, and breathing problems while you sleep. Common side effects include swelling of the ankles, feet, or body, increased red blood cell count, and increase in prostate-specific antigen or PSA levels. PSA is a test used to detect prostate cancer. Report these symptoms to your doctor. Call your doctor to learn more about Kaisotrex. For questions or more information, visit www.kaisotrex.com or call one 949 5040
1: Yeah, so for example, like we have a, a chiropractor on staff that uses very gentle adjustments to help with biomechanical issues, and many people with chronic pelvic pain do have biomechanical issues, so, such as some of the joints in their spine and hips or, and pelvis may not be um, functioning correctly or might be stuck or fixed, so to speak. So gentle adjustments help put motion back into these joints. Uh, we have a, a an excellent chiropractor who uh, analyzes our patients and looks where they can help them. We don't. We refer to a physical therapy group outside of our practice that does internal physical therapy. And perhaps you know you can certainly speak to this. And what they do is they actually go internally either through the vagina or the anus. And what they do is they can actually help relieve tight muscle bands or what we call trigger points. And So these types of treatments, whether it be chiropractic adjustments or physical therapy, biofeedback, you know, these types of treatments are very helpful you know, they may not be the only cause or the main cause of the pain, but they certainly seem to come downstream. Somewhere along the way with the chronic pain, the trigger points and the pelvic floor muscles certainly come on. Biomechanical issues certainly can come on. So having our patients see the chiropractor and the physical therapist, specialized physical therapists, it's not general physical therapists who can do this kind of treatment, as you know. So yeah, specifically, it's, it's those uh, two modalities that seem to be the most helpful.
0: Yeah. And I would add that if you go to a physical therapist, you don't want to be doing Kegel exercises for pain. That will actually make it worse because you're actually tightening those muscles, which are already tight. So you want people to do relaxation exercises or down training is what they call it. Um, And so these physical therapists, pelvic floor physical therapists, are actually specialized in first evaluating your pelvic floor to assess where the trigger points are, where the pelvic floor is tense, and then teaching you exercises that are specific to relax and elongate those muscles so then they can function appropriately. Because when they're tight, I kind of describe it like TMJ, right? Like when you have um, headaches at night or you clench your jaw at night and you wake up with headaches. A lot of times, I'm sure you see that in your practice. Um, and it's because of tense stress, right? And we carry it in our jaw. We also carry it in our pelvis. And so you don't necessarily feel it all the time. I mean, you if you have pain, you feel it all the time. But sometimes Um, People don't even know they have a tight pelvic floor, or they may have some other problem, which I've talked about on this channel a lot, but like urinary frequency, constipation, um, back pain, pain with erection, pain with ejaculation, clitoral pain, all those sorts of things. And it's actually because of pelvic floor muscle problems.
1: That's absolutely correct. We have treatments for severe refractory cases, for example, like spinal cord stimulation, and uh, we can certainly get into that. But um, look, we have an arsenal of tools. It doesn't matter how much pain you've been in, or, or if you've seen you know doctors who weren't able to give you answers. There's still a lot of hope, no matter no matter what's going on. And there's emerging research and evidence that's guiding new treatment protocols. So it's really about trying to look you know especially online and find a specialist, and that's a good you know, good way to start. I can't tell you how many women I've treated that. You know, we're helping them with medicines, injections, and they go to the physical therapist. They have um, some of the pelvic floor treatments. That's what gets them so much better, uh, more than the medicines and injections sometimes. It's, it's, it's amazing. But pain's complex, you know. Yeah.
0: Tell me about, uh, what about like CBD and marijuana? What we
1: found is that while marijuana or cannabis, um, you know, medical marijuana, so to speak, can help certain forms of chronic pain, it's not going to work across the board in everybody and especially with this condition in particular i just haven't seen it be too successful and the research also hasn't really proven that it's, it's too helpful it's not to say that you couldn't have a trial of it to see but we just haven't found a lot of success with it
0: yeah i think there's there's again not much research but i do find that sometimes using marijuana suppository which is kind of local to the tissues, is more helpful than taking it orally um, because it does act more directly on the muscles. But again, I don't think it's something that works for everybody, but it's certainly in the arsenal of options that you can try, I think. Uh, but I didn't know if there was anything you know, new and innovative on that front. However, you know, and I'd like
1: to, for you to weigh in on this, um, I know that uh, sometimes, look, you can use compounding pharmacies who can essentially make anything, that, that you can either use to put into the vagina, for example, like diazepam, for example. I don't know if you utilize this in practice, um, but, you know, they can compound medicine. They can compound gabapentin. They can compound the muscle-relaxing medicines like baclofen, for example. You know, use it topically over the area. Um, I don't, I, I'm curious to know what, if you've had success with, with these treatments, I don't use them as much, especially um, even with hormones. That's
0: a a very good question. So I use suppositories, but I tell patients that it's sort of like a Band-Aid, right? So you can use diazepam or baclofen suppositories. You can put them compounded together. I tend to use baclofen as a start, and then if we need to, we can add the diazepam. But essentially it's a Band-Aid. It's gonna make you feel comfortable for a short period of time maybe. It might help you get through physical therapy, but it's not a cure, right? You're not gonna be using suppository for the rest of your life. Like That's not a feasible cure. It's something that you can use while we're figuring out the root cause of this, right? Hormones are actually really wonderful because the vaginal vestibule and the vagina and the vulva, they're all very hormone sensitive. And of course, as women go through menopause, they're gonna see a precipitous drop in estrogen and that can cause pain. So there's this. the vestibule is the area right outside the vagina, but before the labia, and that area is exquisitely hormone sensitive. So it, when we do our exam, we actually assess that area to see if there's tenderness. And if there is, then using either a compound estrogen testosterone cream or using a DHEA suppository like Prasterone, which is available FDA approved, can be very, very helpful in these patients. And then, of course, if they're having any vulvovaginal atrophy or thinning of the vaginal tissues using just estrogen, whether it's a cream or a suppository or a ring can be very helpful in just improving the health of the tissues. You can imagine if your tissues are thin and friable, they're going to be painful. So improving the health of the tissues with that can go a long way, even improving urinary symptoms because there's estrogen receptors in the bladder and the urethra, so...
1: I know. And that's what we see, like you like you mentioned, a great point, which is it certainly helps on, onto itself, but we've seen it help a lot of women to be able to participate more in physical therapy, especially the internal type of physical therapy. So it clearly has a benefit.
0: Yeah. What about things like ice or heat, or even there's been some data on red light therapy? What are your thoughts on that?
1: So certainly, look, ice, you know, ice takes down inflammation. There's no question, right? It's been around forever. We've known that um, typically, you know, you can use ice for 20 minutes on and, and then you could take it off for an hour. Heat's more for chronic types of pain, but yeah, and those can be very helpful. We use electrical stimulation as well in the office. And that could be, we use it for all kinds of pain, whether it be back pain or joint pain, but it certainly can help pain, no question. You know, it tends to be temporary, but still in all, it, it can be helpful. And you can actually prescribe the stimulators or electrodes at home where patients can put them on at home and they're called TENS units. And also I've, you know, again, you could speak more to this, but I've seen where you can actually, women can have, when you go to physical therapy and they work on your pelvic floor muscles, they can, especially when they're working on trigger points, for example, they can actually prescribe these tools for women to use at home, a wands or dilators. And I've had patients who've told me that that's helpful.
0: Yeah, wands are great for trigger points. Dilators are great for a variety of things. But generally speaking, the pelvic floor therapist will want to assess you first to see what is going to be best for you. I even have male patients who use wands for pelvic pain after they see the pelvic floor physical therapist. It's a little bit more challenging, but certainly when you're motivated and you're in pain and you want to feel better, you know, you, you do what you got to do. So yeah, these can be really helpful. There is a little bit of data on red light that I saw in terms of improving vaginal tissue health, but it's very small, like 40 patients. So really not prime time yet. But I Mm -hmm. think, you know, the way red light works essentially increases like mitochondrial output and creates angiogenesis and so, or new blood vessel formation. So, I mean, I think it's promising, but whether it gets to the right depth of penetration, we don't really know.
1: One treatment that we didn't mention, but that there is some evidence for You know, I use a lot of Botox treatments in neurology for all kinds of things, from spasticity after strokes to migraines. To We have a plethora of conditions that it's very helpful for. In terms of resistant, like myofascial pain syndrome or resistant trigger points in the pelvic floor muscles, there's evidence or research that Botox injections into those points can be very helpful or help longer, say, than traditional trigger point injections that just have sort of lidocaine or bupivacaine. But you have to see, you know, certainly that is going to be a specialist that's going to do internal trigger point injections. We don't do it in our practice, but there certainly is promising research there.
0: Yeah, so we do those in our practice, and they are very helpful for the right patient. Again, I tell people this is, you know, this is something that will give you some relief for some period of time. whistling to work towards doing all the other things, which are stress reduction, pelvic floor physical therapy, um, and kind of identifying if there's a real trigger that we can treat. Um, But yes, they can be very, very helpful, particularly for people who have done the physical therapy and they're not seeing benefit um, and they're just not doing well. And I think you mentioned uh, spinal cord stimulators. We also offer sacral neuromodulation, which is a treatment typically for overactive bladder, but um, also has shown benefit in pelvic pain patients.
1: The problem we find, though, sometimes, and and you can certainly also speak to this, is with modalities like sacral nerve stimulation uh, for pelvic pain, not necessarily urgency, Or urinary issues or Botox for this reason, they're not FDA on label. So what does that mean? Well, we know know as clinicians, they're safe and can be helpful in the right patients, but they're not covered by insurance. So they can be quite expensive. And so that's the other issue, of course. So, you know, look, it's one thing to do a trial and see if it's effective. And if it is, it's worth its weight in gold. And if it's not, then that's a different story.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's some, um, you know, at least over-the-counter things like vagus nerve stimulators and things. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: There is some research that it can be helpful with conditions like uh, migraines, for example. Um, But in terms of other um, chronic pain issues, I have not seen the research behind that necessarily. And we don't really use them for issues like chronic back pain or pelvic pain. It's just not really typically something that we've seen to be all that effective. But again, I don't have a lot of experience using it for chronic pelvic pain, for example.
0: Okay. And then what about, you know, foods, supplements? Are there other things that generally are good for nervous system health or for people who are having pain?
1: Again, excellent question. Um, And the research is always evolving in this, as you know. Uh, So in neurology, we typically will prescribe supplements like alpha-lipoic acid is one of them. Um, We will prescribe B-complex vitamins. These are like nerves really like these supplements. And some people are truly deficient. So look, I mean, certainly if you have a B12 deficiency, that that can lead to many medical issues. And if that's there, then, you know, you want to check these with your doctor and have blood tests. But even if you're not deficient in them, sometimes boosting the levels can be helpful for people, whether it be vitamin B12 injections or um, just over-the-counter B12. Alpha-lipoic acid, as I mentioned, and just a a multivitamin can be very helpful because, let's face it, most people do not necessarily have healthy diets and they're not getting all their macros and micronutrients.
0: Is there a specific kind of recommendation you have when you say healthy diet for people?
1: I mean, again, it's not one size fits all, but what we find is typically diets that are composed of high amounts of sugar, refined carbohydrates, um, they are not good. For people's mood, for people's sleep, for their pain levels, so people just don't feel good. Generally speaking, so Mediterranean-type diets is generally what we recommend, which is you could, you know, uh, fish, meat, salad, um, but but really the refined carbohydrates, we try to, to limit them, not none, but we try to. The sugar is really a pro-inflammatory, you know, component, and also uh, just look the metabolic syndromes we're seeing in in this country right now is off the charts with the diabetes and cholesterol and the central obesity. And it just, that leads to problems everywhere. Um, uh, Not to mention the fact that um, diabetes unto itself can be the cause of nerve issues causing pelvic, chronic pelvic pain. You know, diabetes can cause nerve problems all over the body. Everyone knows about neuropathy in the feet, but that's not the only area that can cause problems. So...
0: Yeah. Diabetes is the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, we see patients in our practice who can't empty their bladders because of diabetes. Of course, we see sexual dysfunction because of diabetes, pain issues because of diabetes. Everywhere. And it is really um, a, a real problem. So I think reducing your sugar intake and um, things that can cause a high glycemic index is really, really valuable. Whether Whatever diet you eat, that's probably the number one thing in reducing processed foods. is going to be really helpful.
1: Absolutely. We have an obesity epidemic. Along with that comes the diabetes, uh, pre-diabetes, diabetes. diabetes. And it's one of those conditions where if it's kept in check, you can have a a normal life. And if those numbers go out of range, it affects every single organ system in the body.
0: Are you enjoying this podcast? If so, make sure to check out our exclusive membership, where you get access to early access of all the podcast episodes with video and audio that are ad-free. Also, you'll be able to ask me anything. And those are the questions that I use to answer monthly ask me anything that only you have access to. So make sure to check it out and subscribe today. So, you know, you're an addiction specialist, so I would be amiss if I didn't ask you some questions about addiction. Um, Tell me, you know, what are some signs of addiction? Like how can someone tell that maybe someone they love or maybe they are starting to develop an addiction?
1: Well, so there's many signs. So, um, you know, just sort of in a general sense, if if you see, for example, that a loved one or an, a close friend um, they have erratic moods, they you know might be maybe staying in their room, and this could be a child, there could be a sibling. They're staying in their room a lot more. They're not coming out. They are acting like they almost don't want to be seen. You know they really aren't being productive in in their life. They're they're backing away from socialization with friends and family members. They're they, essentially they're hiding. That's one of the hallmark signs of someone who has addiction is they're trying to really hide away so that no so that they feel no one can detect that something's wrong.
0: Um, so how can they differentiate from someone who might be depressed versus someone who's addicted? That's a great
1: question. And you look, you can't always know um, you know it can be a combination of, of issues, but that would be the first sort of alert that something's not right. And then you know you certainly can dig deeper. but if you if you're able to intervene and and, and let that person know that you're aware that something's not right, and hopefully, you know, ideally, get them to a doctor uh, that you know, even a even a general doctor who can further look into it and, and might have a, a sense that there might be something more going on that meets the eye, like addiction. Um, they can really help get you to the channels where you can get help because there's tremendous help. We've had a lot of breakthroughs in understanding how addiction happens in the brain. And how we can help people get out of that place, which is essentially a life and death situation, especially now with drugs like fentanyl on the street. Well, you know, it used to be that people had time if they developed an addiction, say, to get help, whether it was detox, rehab. Unfortunately, now what we're seeing is the drugs are so immediately deadly like in, in terms of like fentanyl which is extraordinarily powerful opiate that suppresses your respiratory drive and causes overdose deaths from one use of, of even a small amount of fentanyl most people who overdose and die with fentanyl don't even know they're using fentanyl we see a lot of um, fake and pressed pills like oxycodone pills um that are really not real and so what happens is um you know people are using drugs you know they, they know they're drugs obviously but they're not trying to kill themselves but the fentanyl ultimately causes an overdose so what I see is 15, 16, 17-year-olds that are just sort of experimenting, trying something once, and they overdose and die. They didn't even have an addiction, so to, you know, diagnostically, but they were experimenting and they die. And so unfortunately, that's the kind of uh, issues that, that we are seeing.
0: If that's the case. Are there certain signs and symptoms that are or, or sort of people that may be more at risk for getting addicted? Like, are there things that as a parent or someone who may have someone, a family member who may have access to somebody who's selling drugs, right? Are there things that we should look out for?
1: Well, I think the main concept here is that no one is immune to this. Um, I think, you know, at this point, it's a staggering epidemic, uh, opiate addiction, right? And so if you're not personally affected and somebody very close to you is, you know, it's sort of like one degree of separation at this point. And so, um, yeah, we all have to be on the lookout. So, for example, you know, we often will prescribe to people um, a drug called Narcan, which is something that you'll keep in your house. God forbid there's an overdose where you can, um, it's a, a nasal spray, and it kicks the opiates off the opioid receptors in the brain that stop someone from breathing, and it, can, and it can instantly save someone's life. And so what we find is that we'll prescribe it to someone because we know that either that they themselves or someone else in their family um, has no beat addiction. And, we, and what happens half the time is they wind up using it on the neighbor's kid or the neighbor because it's just so prevalent the addiction. So that's the degree to what, how much uh, addiction is happening in this country. Everyone needs to be a on, on alert for this um, with your kids, with your family members, if you think something might be wrong, given how deadly these drugs are, acting, you know, don't wait and say, well, we'll see. I don't want to bother them. They're going to get mad. They're going to get upset. No, you very well may save their life. So it may be a difficult conversation, but it's absolutely necessary.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's great. So you mentioned that there's, you know, we know a lot about the brain in terms of addiction. So what happens to our brains?
1: Yeah. So what we know is that um an area of the brain is that's called the limbic system. And this area of the brain is a part of the brain that we is not it's extraordinarily powerful over our drives and our motivations. And although it's very powerful, we don't have um, voluntary control over it. It's the area of the brain that controls our organs, our heart, our lungs. Um, it's also what drives us to be motivated to make sure we eat, to have attraction to a male or female for procreation and so forth. Nature didn't want our rational, our prefrontal cortical brain to be able to forget those things. So they're on autopilot, right? And so what happens is when when somebody exposes the limbic system of their brain to a drug, like an opiate for example, or alcohol if you're susceptible repeatedly over and over again the limbic system that gets hijacked it gets rewired so that the limbic system essentially starts to believe that that drug is as important or actually more important than survival drives like 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 eating for example and so once that happens then the limbic system with the same force that it would make you feel hungry for food and now drives your frontal your voluntary brain to look for that drug as as if it's like a life and death thing. And so the rational brain doesn't have the wiring by design to shut off that other area of the brain because nature didn't want us to be able to mess with the part of our brain that runs our organ systems. So um, when the limbic system is, is sort of sending all these signals to the rational brain of someone who's addicted to go out and find that drug, it's very, very hard for that person to use their rational brain to fight back against those impulses. And so what happens is, the limbic system and the front of the brain basically make a deal every day when someone um, is, is mired with addiction, which is the frontal part of the brain says to the limbic system, I don't want to keep using drugs because my life is falling apart. I know I can wind up dying. I'm losing everything. And the limbic system says, all right, we'll just use it one more time today and tomorrow we'll figure out how to stop. And that's what happens every day, unfortunately, un- until someone loses everything or, or, or dead. And so um, this is what happens with addiction. So it's not so easy necessarily for someone to say, you know, a family member can say, look at what you're doing, you know, you lost all your money, you're stealing, you're doing this or you're doing these other terrible behaviors, just stop already. It's not so easy because there are these changes in the brain they're not necessarily permanent, right? A lot, we can get a lot of people much better and we have new treatments that are very effective, but you have to get someone to get help. You know, it's, it's not so easy just telling them to do it or yelling at them.
0: What are some tips and tricks that you can offer to family members who are dealing with this? Like, how do you get that person to come see you? A lot of times, family members have to
1: use leverage. And a lot of people with addiction are kind of using family members or spouses or siblings or, you know, to help support their habit. So, and you may not be directly giving them money for the habit, but maybe they're getting financial support from you. Maybe they're living under your roof. You have to use these, these, um, the leverage that you have. To say, well, you're not going to get these things unless not that you're kicking them out of the house, for example, but that you use that leverage. That if you don't do go see the doctor, um, then I'm not going to continue to supply you with these things. You know, you have to get to the the part of their brain that's going to be motivate them to wanna to wanna do those things because right, you can't you can't physically force somebody as it stands. You can't do that. You cannot force someone into rehab.
0: Is addiction to drugs the same thing as addiction to like other things like food or sugar or pornography? Uh, is it uh, phones, social media, whatever? Is it the, is it the same brain pathways?
1: It is actually, and all the research is showing us that. And in fact, uh, you know, for example, let, look at let's look at um, gambling addiction. For example, if you know anyone that deals with gambling addiction, it will look to you like it might as well be an addiction to any you know to an opiate drug that's the power at which it hijacks the same area of the brain so that person will continue to gamble and bet and lose their money lose their kids you know college fund they lose control of everything and and they'll keep doing it until they're basically at zero or worse And so we know that that, uh, behavioral addictions, like gambling addiction, hijack the same reward center, the same limbic system in the brain, and then that person loses the control to to sort of stop the incessant cravings to keep to doing that behavior. And I'll I'll tell you something very fascinating, which is we use a medicine to help people with addiction uh, called Vivitrol. This is a once-monthly injection that blocks the receptors in the brain, so it, it stops cravings but it also blocks receptors. So if someone were to, and it works for a month. So if someone were to use opiates, for example, it would bounce off the brain and they wouldn't get high. They you know, they wouldn't feel anything essentially. Um, and it also works to help with alcohol addiction. But interestingly enough, we're seeing that people that have gambling addiction, if you give them a treatment with Vivitrol, they also don't care much about gambling. So we're learning so much about the the, the changes in that limbic system, that propel people to continue to have addiction.
0: That's so interesting because I think that there's so much of these small, like, I guess not as big addictions, but certainly they are problematic and maybe they're not exactly full blown addictions, but, you know, we're seeing a lot of social media use disorders, what we're saying, right? We see people who are having problems with pornography and we're seeing people who have obviously addiction to sugar, right? And so I wonder if you know, of course, these medications are not appropriate for those patients, or they haven't been studied in those patients, but I wonder if they would help.
1: So most likely, if someone is engaging in a behavior, the key is they lose control. They continue to do a behavior that's ultimately hurting them, and it's very apparent that they're losing things, but yet they keep using. And if that's not a sign to you that the wiring of their brain isn't correct, um, then, you know, you're paying attention. So if, when you see people who are, for example, are addicted to, again, let's go back to opioid drugs. They stop eating. They become emaciated. Why? Because their drive for to even eat is is they don't care about that anymore because the drug is the driving force for all their behavior. And so it, it's just so telling that something's clearly wrong in the brain. You know, for so long it was thought to be a psych, just a psychological problem, or it's a moral problem. You know, all these types of things that these stigmas, and we know that it's not. You know, certainly we can get people better and get them away from drugs and help them through the detox process and then help them with tools to stay sober, um, but they're always will be susceptible. Their brain is susceptible. And again, it's a spectrum. There, There's definitely genetic underpinnings to addiction. We know for uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so, and we know some of the genes actually, um, but essentially if you know you're susceptible, you can never engage in that behavior or that drug because it will hijack the brain immediately and it will go off the rails very easily. Understanding this is is key to also staying sober.
0: Yeah. So outside of genetics, are there other susceptibilities? Are yes. there other things that make people susceptible? There are certain
1: underlying mental health conditions. There's a much higher incidence of having developing addiction. So the two most common are um, untreated ADHD, mainly uh, because there's um, impulse control issues and the spikes of, of reinforcement and dopamine that these drugs do, they the people with ADHD are particularly susceptible to developing addiction. Their brain sort of can, can the changes, the rewiring can happen much easier in someone with um, ADHD. Also, we see it a lot with people who have bipolar disorder. So there are certainly underlying mental health issues. Um, in fact, most people that I see with addiction, a lot of times they come to the table with these concomitant or comorbid mental health issues. And if you don't treat the underlying mental health issue, they're so much more vulnerable to falling back again into relapsing.
0: So what percentage of people are successful the first time around? There's so, and there's
1: so much variability. So it's very hard for me to give you a number or a percentage It depends on the type of help that they're getting too, right? There are some rehabs and detox facilities that still are so antiquated that they won't even use medicines to help people because they just don't feel it's a biological problem, that it's just that, you know, it's a moral or ethical problem. People are much more likely to fail if that's the treatment. And then other places have um, some treatments available, but not others in terms of medications. So, you know, there's a big push to try to get more standardization in the kinds of treatments you get at rehabs because they're all over the
0: map. How can someone determine if something is a like evidence-based rehab center versus not? What would the try to figure out a place for their person to go? Because someone can market something really well, right? And make oh, it look wonderful. And they do. Yeah.
1: They do. And so it is very hard. It is the wild west right now. It's in evolution, right? That will ultimately be changing. It's in the process. But the best thing that you can do, and it varies tremendously by state too. So the best thing that you can do is if you go online, really what you have to look for is certain addiction treatment centers, whether outpatient or inpatient like a rehab, they can be certified by the state. And that almost always means that they have to follow evidence-based guidelines. In New York, it's OASIS that certifies addiction treatment centers. And so if you go there, they have to follow um, enormous amounts of protocols that you know that you're gonna you're gonna get you're gonna be seen by a doctor who's board certified in addiction medicine. You're gonna be seen by therapists or counselors that have specialized training in that arena. You know, if you just go anywhere, you know, they may not even you may never even see a doctor.
0: Yeah, they may just give you a nice little spa to hang out in, right? Yeah,
1: I mean, you see how they sell them. Oh, look at the palm trees, the ocean, you know, and then they you don't get good care.
0: Yeah, that's a shame though. They're preying on people who really need good care. But that's why we're here. That's why we do these things. Right. So I tend to um, end the podcast with four quick kind of rapid questions. Okay. So what is one thing that you know now in your life that you wish you learned earlier? That
1: in terms of health and medicine, nobody knows everything and that we all, all have to work together, including doctors as a team. You know, if you just go see a doctor who says they want answer for everything, that's not good advice. Right. And if a doctor refers you to someone, that's okay right? Because a lot of times doctors work together, especially on complex issues. So, you know, keep that in mind because that you're going to very likely get the best care if you're open-minded.
0: And what is something that you do every day that's a non-negotiable?
1: I r- try very hard to meditate um, for, even if it's just for 10 minutes, right? Just to start my day. I make sure that I exercise for me. I, you know, I get to the gym, And I exercise at least a few days a week. If I don't do that, I definitely do not feel as well mentally and physically.
0: Um, And if there was one thing you could change in the world, what would it be?
1: I live it every day. I wish that we could have sort of um, a massive change in the way people perceive mental health and addiction um, because it has such a stigma and it prevents people from reaching out and getting the help that they need.
0: And then lastly, what's one health hack that you wish people knew about?
1: Again, let's go back to exercise. Um, all the research shows that, for example, when we study antidepressants, for example, up against exercise, exercise always does the same or better um, than some of these medicines. Uh, it helps with pain. It helps with mental health. It helps with longevity. It's the number one thing that's shown to increase quality of life, years to your life. What we see is that it helps with sleep. It helps with so many things. It helps with um, insulin uh, regulation. It, the, the, the sky's the, the, the limit on in how much exercise helps people.
0: Right. Well, Russell, thank you so much for joining us. Can you let everyone know where they can find you?
1: So I practice for Northwell Hospital Systems in New York. That's in Great Neck. And um, you can certainly go online and you can search my name and you'll see, you know, how to contact me. Uh, and again, we have a multidisciplinary team, so it's not just myself, um, but that was the easiest way.
0: Great. Wonderful. Uh, thank you much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you guys for listening to today's podcast episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. If you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or subscribe to our channel on YouTube. These are easy, free ways that you can support our content so we can continue to offer it to you completely free. And if you want to keep learning more, make sure to follow me on my social medias at Rena MD. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, threads, basically anywhere you consume your social media content. Can't wait to see you there. And always remember to take care of yourself because you are worth it.